I'm spinning in circles and talking to myself. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Welcome to a new spin on autism. Answers with host and international speaker and performer, Lynette Louise. Besides working on her doctorate in psychophysiology, Lynette has raised eight children, six adopted, and four of them falling somewhere on the autism spectrum. Laugh with her, cry with her, as she talks to both experts and parents and takes you through the often confusing, sometimes frustrating, sometimes overwhelming, but always fascinating world of autism. Hello and welcome. This is a new spin on Autism Answers. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as the Brain Broad. And today we're going to chat about the attitudes within. It's something we have to talk about. Okay, why did this come up? Well, first of all, I want to tell you that my guest, my primary guest, um, is here for the second time. Not that you would be aware of that, but I'm aware of it because we already did this show. Unfortunately, we had some tech technical problems that I'm asking her to redo it because she's so great, so you're in for a treat. Um, and, and I just want you to appreciate that she's having to repeat everything she's already said. Hopefully she'll still have some energy and love for the subject matter. Um, and the reason that I came up with the idea of having this chat is because we're always crying out into the world saying, you have to accept us, you have to accept us, we're different, you have to accept us. And one of the things that I discovered as mom was that my children actually didn't accept each other or the other people in their class or the people they met at Special Olympics or all the different places. They had a kind of snobbery, a kind of cliquey behavior where they would go, well, that one, he, you know, that one can't even swallow properly. So um, it was very interesting to me that even within the community, the special disabilities community itself, there was a kind of ostracization going on and bullying existed, and it wasn't all the neurotypicals against the not-typicals. And so I think it's something maybe we should sort of throw around a little bit. Um, and I had to pick someone for that. I did not pick an autistic person. I picked somebody with the most entertaining and wonderful blog who is disabled, and she'll tell us about that. Um, she's just a fantastic writer, and I really want to highlight it. Um, her name is Emily Ladau. I hope I said it right. You know me and names, but because I learn everything from reading. I remember the first time I was in neuroanatomy class, I was talking to the professor, and I was pretending I was, you know, so brilliant. And I said, so the amygdala, which, by the way, is pronounced amygdala, and he looked at me, and I said, I'm Canadian. I have an accent. So anyways, uh, <laughs> Emily Ladau is a passionate disability rights advocate. Um, she's employed. Uh, but she's also volunteering. So she's a busy lady, uh, probably busier than many of us. She works, volunteers with multiple organizations. She develops resources for the disability community. She also likes to encourage people with all types of disabilities to develop their inner voice for advocacy, which is something that she's definitely done and done it well. So, so Emily shares her message with the power of advocacy through her writing, especially on her blog. And her blog is called Words I Wheel By. And again, I can't highlight it enough. It's, it's, it's delightful, it's interesting, it's informative, and it's funny. And she's really willing to talk about real stuff. Uh, before I bring her on, I want to remind you that after Emily, we're going to have, okay, 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 the great guest giveaway. And at the very end of the show, I'm going to put it all together and tell you a story and answer the question that I'm about to ask. The question is, can we ask others to accept us if we don't accept ourselves? Hello, Emily. Thank you for speaking for people. Hi. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Again. I'm having you again. <laughs> Why, just a couple of days ago we did this. But thank you for your patience, and we'll give it another shot. Um, Emily, let's start by telling them a little bit about who you are and your disability and what you cope with. Absolutely. So I have a rare disability called Larson syndrome. It affects my joints and my muscles, and I use a wheelchair full-time. And my mother and her younger brother have the disability as well, so it is genetic. Um, because of this, I was extremely motivated to be involved in the disability community. So I have been active in it since I was about 10 years old. Uh, I started out my advocacy career appearing on Sesame Street to teach. Oh, see, oh, I almost don't feel real this time because last time she said that, I was like, oh, I'm so jealous. I'm so jealous. 
It's been my career goal all my life. I'm like, I will know I've made it when they accept me on Sesame Street. And I'm always telling my daughter, pitch me for Sesame Street. So I'm so jealous you just started there. It it was um, all kind of a by happenstance, but it was an amazing experience. So I got to teach kids and their families about life with a disability. And, you know, after I got the taste of what a 10-year-old could do um, as an advocate, I realized that I really wanted to dedicate my life to it. Um, So I have since been pursuing all kinds of disability advocacy-related initiatives, and it is absolutely my passion. Okay, so I'm going to try to stop thinking, why can't I get on Sesame Street, and I'm going to move forward into the subject matter. So I'm glad it's your passion, um, and I'm jealous that you were on Sesame Street. You mentioned that your mother had the disability as well, or the chromosomal issue. Can you um, sort of explain that a bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So my parents um, in the late 1980s, I actually just wrote a a blog post about this now that I think about it. Um, But anyway, so in the late 1980s, my parents were considering um, conceiving their first child, and they sought out genetic counseling, um, at which time genetic experts thought that Larson syndrome was a recessive disorder, which essentially just means that there was a smaller chance of me having uh, my disability. So my parents went ahead um, conceiving naturally. And midway through the pregnancy, right around the same time that they had already named me Emily, they ended up finding out that the genetic disorder was actually dominant Um, which means that there was a 50-50 chance of me having the disorder, and I did, in fact, have it. Um, You know, but at that point, they had, since they had already named me, they obviously pursued the rest of the pregnancy, and here I am. (laughs) How do you feel about that, knowing that? And how does your mom, does does she cope with guilt? Does she talk to me about that a little bit? You know, I, my mother has expressed to me, um, guilt at certain times and the fears that I would hold a grudge against her. Um, but it, it's part of life, and I have never held a grudge against her. And if anything, I think the fact that we share something as deep as having the exact same disability has really made us closer uh, than we might have been otherwise. Um, so, it you know, sometimes it's tough, but Ultimately, and some people might think I sound silly for saying this, ultimately I think it's a a really positive aspect of my life. Ooh, please explain. (laughs) I think um, the rewards that I have found in embracing my disability, I know this all sounds so cheesy. Um, You know, there was a time when I probably didn't believe it myself, but it helped me forge my own path in life. And it's part of, I think, what makes me unique. It's part of what makes anyone who has a disability unique. Um, If they choose to embrace it as part of their identity, I think that you can find that your life will be richer for it. Interesting. Well, your life is richer, but how would you know? Because you've only ever been you. That's an excellent point. I just have to to go with my gut. Um, But I wouldn't be me if I didn't have a disability, so... I, I choose to look at it that way. <laughs> well, I choose, to, I choose to look at it that way, too. But it's, it is an interesting point to say, you know, we can't know what it is to wear someone's else, someone else's shoes. We can't know what it is to have a disability if we don't have it. And we don't know what it is to not have it if we have it. We just have to live within our own bodies and look for absolutely. the positive. Yeah, and look for the richness, absolutely. Now, last time you were on, one thing that came out bright and, and clear was your relationship with your mother sounds super, super, super well bonded, like as if you were so close. Is that true? We are best friends. I I want the whole world to know that. She is wonderful. Um, and not to be forgotten, although my father does not have a disability, um, you know, the three of us are like the three musketeers. <laughs> That's so interesting. So your father has no disability. What is your mother's challenge? Um, so because Larson syndrome manifests itself differently, my mother does still walk most of the time and uses a wheelchair only part-time. Um, so she is a stay-at-home mother, and she runs the household, runs a tight ship. She does a fabulous job. Um, so, But I think her challenges 
have always been being a parent and also taking care of her own needs. And your father and her, was he aware that she had challenges or was she miraculously fit when he met her? Tell us a teensy bit about that. This has nothing to do with the subject matter. We're going to get back on track in a second, but I'm curious. Oh, no problem. Yeah, so my dad actually did know um, when he met my mother about her disability. Um, that certainly did not deter him. And, you know, people people always say, oh, he's such a saint or what a great person. But, you know, he's, he's just a person. Um, he's, he's not heroic for seeing past a disability, although I would argue that he's a hero because he's a really great dad. <laughs> um, yeah, but so he was, he was always aware of my mother's disability and of the potential risks, I guess, of me having a disability, but it's never really seemed to bother him. That's really cool. I mean, I, I think the point really, the takeaway from that is that maybe, <laughs> maybe we are on track. Um, you know, there's lots of neurotypicals that end up with disabled people. I, I meet them all the time. So clearly we are being accepted often uh, and we are being seen for who we are. And if your mom is a delightful person and it matches your dad's wishes to be with her kind of delightful, then he's going to fall in love with her regardless of her challenges. So let's go ahead and go to the question of the day, which is, are we accepting ourselves? So you as a, as a person with a disability are an athlete advocate for people with disabilities but in your history have you ever experienced times where there was a kind of clinking off or um, the people themselves within your community were having trouble accepting each other you know it's such a, a tough question um, but there have been far too many times I think where I've seen communities unnecessarily divided over issues where one community feels that a certain form of advocacy is more important than another community, and it ends up becoming an unnecessary clash that I think really hinders progress. You know, so the visually impaired or the blind community might have a different perspective than the deaf community who has a different perspective than the autistic community who has a different perspective than the community of wheelchair users. So, um, you know, I can understand that everyone has certain priorities based on the ramifications of their disability, but at the same time, I think that the only way we can really make true progress is at least, at the very least, agreeing to disagree and agreeing to back each other up. Um, you know, so often I've seen communities divided over something, and then when it comes time for them to work together, they're so hung up on one issue that was divisive, but they're not realizing the progress they can make if they all come together um, in favor of advocating for disability rights as a whole. Or human beings as a whole. There's a concept. There you go. Absolutely. Because really that just sounds like society, doesn't it? I mean, if you go into any uh, group of lobbyists, they're all lobbying for a different position for their, their various groups, and everyone has a different perspective, and everyone has different priorities, and big business wants big business to flourish, and the small guy wants the small guy to flourish, and, the, you know, it, some people want health care, and some people don't, and there's always a, a, a million different opinions. If we could only agree to disagree in whole, on religion, on politics, on our needs, and just say, okay, we're all human beings, but when we're fighting for our stuff, we're fighting for our stuff and not make it personal. That, that would certainly be ideal. And, you know, Utopia. Think, go on. <laughs> you know, diversity is what makes the world go round. It might be cheesy, but it's true. But at the same time, uh, you know, there comes a point where I might not agree with somebody, but I want to see their side of the issue. I want to understand why they prioritize advocating for something in particular that I might not personally be advocating for. And I'm, I'm very lucky because I have friends um, from all different ranges of the disability community. So I've really had the chance to be exposed to the importance of opening my eyes up to causes that I might not otherwise have been aware of. 
So we are a story show, which means we get pretty personal, um, and and I like that about it. I like the intimacy of it, and we've been doing a kind of little, you know, the world should be different talk, but let's get into it just for a second. Tell us a story from your life. Describe how your disability affects your functioning, and maybe a time when you went to camp or you did something where you did see um, and, you know, have some kind of touchstone or experience with people who are creating rifts and cliques. Yeah, so when I was younger, I went to a wonderful camp uh, for kids with all kinds of disabilities. It's actually called Southampton Fresh Air Home. And, you know, I have nothing but good things to say about it. Um, But the only thing I would notice on occasion is that people would gather in groups sometimes based on the type of disability that they had um, or even where they were from. And I don't think anyone was doing it to hurt anyone intentionally. You just gravitate towards what you know. Um, But for me, I grew up in a very mainstream society. My parents decided to send me to a mainstream school starting from kindergarten. Uh, So I had never really been around big groups of disabled people up until that point. And... It was, it was an eye-opener for me because here I am thinking that cliques only exist in schools, but they, they're everywhere. It's, it's human nature. Is it unfortunate? Yes, but, you know, it is human nature. Oh, and it's, it's an interesting thing. I'll tell you a story of one of my sons. He was getting to where he was fairly high-functioning, but he wasn't quite ready to be on his own. And so I said, well, would you like to try group home as your step before independence? And he's like, uh, what's that? And I'm like, well, let's go for a tour, and you can meet the other people in the group home that's local to us and see how it functions. So I got permission for the tour, and I took him in there. And, you know, there were a variety of disabilities within. And and now I I modeled a very accepting attitude for my children. That doesn't mean what I modeled they took on, because <laughs> we leave the group home, and he goes, I'm not living with those people. None of them are smart. <laughs> And I was like, oh, my gosh, you're a snob. <laughs> and, and you know, as I dug into this, I've seen this many, many, many times where, you know, sometimes it's just clicking, but sometimes it's just plain trying to feel better about who you are by standing on the shoulders of someone else. Now, all societies do it, but it kind of makes sense that if you're dealing with a disability, you either rise to the occasion and decide to see it as enriching your life or you look around for a way to feel better about yourself and try to find the person who's more disabled than you to kind of push down. And this is a problem in all society. It's not, it's not, I'm not saying disabled people do this. I'm saying people choose which way they're going to go regardless of their challenges. And my son chose not so nice in that moment. <laughs> You know, something I think everyone, myself included, is guilty of that. I certainly couldn't come on the show and say that I'm perfect in any way, shape, or form, especially because one thing that I'm really working on, um, especially this year, it was my New Year's resolution, actually, is to focus on accepting myself. And, you know, I know that's something that everyone struggles with, but especially the disability community. Um, So as I'm working on accepting myself, I have to keep reminding myself not to compare or put down in my mind someone else because I want to feel better about myself. Um, It's a challenge, but I try to remember that my self-worth isn't going to improve because I'm insulting somebody else. So. Well, good. So you keep saying that. Not only <laughs> make sure you say it to your community as well as say it out in the world. Um, because I really think if we want, which we do want, we're always saying we want to be accepted and embraced for our difference. And life, you know, should be full of challenges and interests and all that. It doesn't have to be a good and bad kind of situation. But if we want that, we have to do that. And, um, you know, like as with most things, it all starts at home. So that's really our responsibility, isn't it? Absolutely. And I got very lucky because my parents have tried to instill this in me. Um, But I, I really think what you said about it starting at home, it really resonates with me because I think the only way to avoid divisive communities is 
to start with accepting yourself and understanding yourself and your needs. Um, because if you're more comfortable with yourself, and I say this not from the viewpoint of an expert because I am still working on it every day, um, but if you can learn to love yourself a little more and accept yourself, you know, you'll you'll start to understand where other people are coming from. And this is something that I have been learning recently. Um, so it's it's been an interesting journey. <laughs> well, good. Keep on learning that. All right. Tell people how to get to you, read your blog, um, and give us a last little word of wisdom. Absolutely. So you can check out my blog. It's wordsiwheelby.com. Um, you can find me on various social media by checking out my blog. I love connecting with people, so I'd be really excited to hear from new readers. Um, and I think for my last words of wisdom, I'll just say uh, I really I hope that people take it to heart to accept yourself first and to focus on also accepting those around you, regardless of your differences because that's really the only way that we're going to make any progress. Oh, that's awesome. But I still want to ask you one more question. That just Absolutely. Thought, I just thought of it, even though you just said the most awesome thing and I should hang up. I'm just going to ask. So you sounded as if you're fully comfortable with the fact that you, you, know, you ended up with a disability based on this chromosomal issue um, or genetic issue. Is this uh, something that would you consider having a baby? Oh, yeah. Um so I'm only 22, but I won't lie, I have definitely given this a lot of thought already for the future. Um, it's so important to me to try to have a child of my own biologically. I would absolutely love to. Um, but at the same time, I know it's a big risk to take, knowing that there's a pretty high chance that I could pass on my disability to my future offspring. And while I'm able to have a cheerful disposition about life with a disability most of the time, you know, it's not always easy, so I often conflicted as to whether I would want to pass on the hardships along with the positives um, to a child of mine. So I think it, it's a very personal decision and also one that, I worry I would be judged either way, but I'm currently grappling with that issue, and I think, I hope anyway, that when the time comes for me to really consider becoming a mother, that I would have the support systems that would help me figure out what the right answer is. Um, but either way, whether I had a child with a disability, if it's even physically possible um, for me to carry a child for nine months, I would I would love that child either way. But genetic ethical dilemmas, I mean, it's so complicated. Um, I'm not sure there's any one right answer to that question. I don't think there's any run, one right answer to any question. I tell you what, I'll support you no matter what you choose. So if you run out of support network, you remember to come back here because we will support you in whatever choice you make. Um, as long as you promise to be as wonderful and supportive with your child as your mom's been with you and to create a real bond, who knows, she might be the one that uh, changes the world in some way. So, you know, you can't, she or he, so you can't say there's a good or a bad decision here. You know, you're so right. I love how you said that. That's a that's a great thing that I'll take with me for sure. All right. Well thank you for being here again. <laughs> All right, say your say your name say your name properly. Emily Ladau. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Bye bye. All right, take care. Bye bye. Well, that was Emily Ladau and she's amazing. Um the chromosome Issue. I kept saying chromosome. She's saying genetic because I don't even know if in her case it's chromosomal. I'd have to look it up. But what's in my head is a family that I recently worked with, and I've been working with them for a long time, and the child's autistic and has had a lot of difficulty gaining language, just managing it. And they finally had a new genetic test that the family could do, and they discovered that the mom had this chromosome issue that she's now passed to two of her sons, and one of them got the uh, behaviors of autism and the other one didn't, but he will then pass it on to his children. And so they have this new knowledge that has created new opportunities for guilt, 
but also new opportunities for understanding and letting go of guilt. So the whole idea of there being a physiological reason behind the autism is one that gets bandied about a bit. And we try to, to blame environment, we try to blame genetics, and we try to blame, you know, psychology, and the old, all the way back to the old refrigerator mother stories. So the point is that there is a blame. <laughs> There's something causing it. And we can just accept that from the get-go and go, something's causing this, and hopefully a researcher will find out, and, and that will lead to a cure. But if it's not leading to a solution, why don't we just say, wow, this didn't happen just because. This happened for a reason, and I'm not guilty. Um, I didn't sit there having a baby and baking the baby in my womb going, please turn out autistic so I'll have a major challenge. So let's just let go of that. And if you can discover you know, the chromosomal issue or whatever did go wrong, maybe that'll help you to make decisions down the line or for your offspring to make decisions. But, you know, bottom line, it didn't come out of nowhere. So there is something. We just maybe didn't find it in your case yet. And let's just leave it at that, um, at least for now. So moving forward, we're going to be talking to, check this out. <laughs> My okay, 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 great guest giveaway guest is so brilliant. She must be used to my show because she phonetically spelled out her last name for me, which doesn't mean I'll say it correctly over and over again, but her name is Michelle Spirkanis, and she's a registered nurse, an award-winning author. Ooh, la, la, not me. I'm an author, not award-winning. I think I'm jealous again. It might, maybe I should say, does it, be, does it benefit you to be jealous? And I'll have have that be my question of the day. Um, Speaker and leading author, uh, Michelle, we're back to Michelle, we're off of me. Um, She's a speaker and a leading authority on parenting. Uh, Whoa, maybe we are on me. No, just kidding. Okay, I gotta gotta just stop being in such a silly mood and introduce this wonderful lady. She's written five books. She's well respected in her area of expertise. And we are moving forward into the okay, 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 great guest giveaway. Again, not talking to someone who has autism. We have widening the net, making it bigger. Because I believe that if we're going to talk about the disability community being accepted from within, we have to spread this net so wide that we're including the entirety of the disability community, everybody. And then spread the net even wider so that we're including neurotypicals and wrapping this entire net around the globe and saying, this is a human issue. And so the next guest actually has not got a disability. And today's great guest giveaway knows nothing about autism. Actually, I have no idea whether she does or she doesn't. But here's the thing. Coming to, um, coming to a field or coming to a situation without preconceived ideas and, and huge amounts of information on the diagnosis and how it should be handled and all of that. And what are the benefits in that? So sometimes being blind to a circumstance makes you a better seer, gives you clear eyes. Whereas when you know a diagnosis and the rules of it and you've bought into the mythologies, the next thing you know you're seeing what you've been told to see and missing all kinds of goodies. So, building on that, I want to mention something else. That's only of use if you also know a lot. So it's a combination between knowing nothing and having a full, sort of a a brain full of knowledge in your own field so that you bring something to a situation. So we're going to cover that today by having a guest who knows a lot, but just not necessarily about autism, although I haven't asked her, so we'll find out. For all I know, everybody knows someone who's autistic nowadays. Um, but the reason she's here is because she's written a ton of books, a ton, and makes me feel not prolific at all. And, um, and I love, by the way, that she's labeled a bunch of them 411. So she's got like 411 on surviving teenhood, 411 on life skills, 411 on step parenting. Stop. She has more, but this is the one that I want to talk about. Because very often, 
having a special needs child in that. Well, actually, very often just marriage leads to divorce. But <laughs> very often a special needs child in the house really taxes a, a couple. And you end up divorced, and then you're on the lookout, you know. Daddy number one said, or mommy number one, or whoever number one said, well, I didn't plan on this, I'm outie. And then uh, the one who's taking the responsibility is running around going, who would like to help me with this? So um, so you can end up in a step-parent situation with a special needs child, and I'm not sure she's covered that. So we're going to kind of talk to her about her book and see if she'll give one away. There's always good tips whether you uh, are dealing exactly in autism or not. All right, Michelle, pipe in. How do you say your last name? Uh, it's Spicanis. Spicanis. All right. Yes. Michelle Very close. Spicanis. In all fairness to me, it is spelled as I tried to phonetically do it. Sure. Okay, you'll find Yeah, I did too when I first met my husband. <laughs> <laughs> what was your what was your name before? Um, well my uh first married name was Moore. Oh that's so much, much easier. <laughs> <laughs> much easier. Okay, so the four one one first of all, you you've written a ton of books. This is really awesome. Um you just spend your life writing or or has it always been something you love to do? Tell us about that a little bit. About you. Actually, I love writing. Uh, my initial career, I'm a registered nurse, so I can l- take a lot of what I know as nursing and apply it towards my books. Um, I really, it's been a passion of mine for a long time, but it really wasn't until my daughter, who was a single mother at the time, was getting ready to move out of the home, and I thought, wow, have I done everything I can to prepare her to teach her how to take care of herself and her child. And, and so that's how the 411 on Life Skills book came about. I was, like, you know, writing notes down and do this, clean that, you know, how often, where, those kind of things. And uh, friends of mine said, you know, wow, that's really something. Maybe you should write a book. So I did the research and realized that although there are some life skill courses out there, a lot of them are electives and our kids are not choosing to take them because they think they know everything. So I decided let's go ahead and and write this book. And after getting, um, you know, the the reception back on the book, it was like, wow, you know, everybody wants this type of information. What else can I do? And, you know, with 50% of marriages ending in divorce every year and 65% of those going on to remarry, 40% bringing children with them, I thought, wow, step parenting is is got to be the book to write. Right, right. And so, okay, are you a step parent? Uh, my husband is a step parent to my children. So, did you uh, follow I, him around with pad and pen, going, okay? So, <laughs> well, you know, and I also have um, two step parents. I have a stepmother and I have a stepfather. So, I've lived that lifeline. Um, of a couple generations now of step-parents. I get to see it from all different angles and have experienced from different angles. And now my daughter is a step-parent to two young girls. So it's it's all kind of come for full circle, you know. Um, and with, if everybody really thinks about it, um, you know, the statement that you made earlier that everyone knows someone with autism, everyone knows someone who's a step-parent or has step-parents. Oh, it's a stigma now to have the same parents almost. It's like right. <laughs> I've heard the kids talking about it, and they're like, both your parents are together? I mean, it's yeah, unusual. It's unusual. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Sad but true. Okay, so, so, so you researched it. You wrote a book about it. I assume you've probably gotten emails on it. Um, so uh, so let's, let's dig, dig in a little bit. Let's say you... We're talking to somebody, and they said they sent you an email. I'm just going to make this up. They send you an email, and they say, you know, I'm looking at uh, step parenting with these two kids, and I really love the mom, and the kids are great, but one is um, autistic. One is, you know, very special, and and grates on my nerves like crazy because keeps banging all the furniture and making this, you know, weird noise and and chooses toenails. Let's say, um, actually, I've never met a toenail chewing autistic person hopefully someone will send me an email with a story of one so tell me what what kind of advice would you give what kind of um, help would they find in your book well i have a you know different chapters that i have um, talking about how 
things that you need to do before you marry a person and, you know, who's going to handle the rules and the discipline and the roles. Um, I do have a, a chapter on, I actually call it problem children, but I don't mean it in a way that kids are problems. I mean it in a way that what if you come across a child who's bulimic, um, anorexic, you know, they have eating disorders, they have sleeping disorders. There are other ways to, you know, self-abuse like cutting or burning themselves, those kind of things. You know, what can you do as a step-parent to try and approach these? Now, it takes a very special person to be able to deal with a child who... Um, would be considered out of the norm, okay? And I always wonder when people say, oh, I just want a normal child. What is a normal child? I mean, I think I, there's, even, I think, yeah, I think that's one of those kids from the 1950s. Right. But yeah, right. I'm pretty sure they yeah. don't exist now. Yeah. Even as a nurse, I think, you know, all of, when I used to work on the floor nursing, I took care of children. And I used to think, you know, People go, oh, I only want a normal child. What is a normal child? You know, there is no true definition uh, of what maybe I think is normal is, you know, totally different to somebody else. I do have a stepsister that has an autistic child. And I, I can tell you, you know, watching the world through his eyes, it's really cool. I know he's yeah. a lot of work. And, you know, he, he's very special. But I tell you, they're just so innocent. And they come up with the coolest things. You know, it's just really interesting to watch. But I back agree. To the I scenario, mean, perspective-wise. You know, no, I, I agree. I think they have a, have a really, really unique perspective. And maybe yeah. the question shouldn't be I want, or the statement shouldn't be I want a normal child, but I want a child that doesn't bang the furniture, or I want a child that doesn't. Sure. When you get specific, then you can teach to it. Right, right. But, you know, in talking to someone um, that might be getting into a relationship or a marriage with someone with an autistic child, um, the first thing I would ask them is, you know, what kind of courses, are, are you willing to take any courses to really learn about what you're getting into and to learn how to cope and to deal with, um, you know, different situations? You know, I think it takes a very patient person. And although you may love another person so much that you think you can take that on, sometimes love isn't enough, and people have to realize that. Okay, I just learned a lesson. (laughs) I just learned a lesson because as soon as you said that, I wanted to roll my eyes and think, oh, great, they're going to learn a lot of myths. And then it, and then I went ahead and, and went the next step in my mind really quickly. I'm a very fast thinker. And I, and I thought, wait a minute, if you're so, so I'm going to sort of build on what you just said. So you're a potential step parent. You meet this woman who's got, or, or a man who's got, a, you can tell my leaning, I'm assuming she's a single mom, but shame on me. Right. Um, who's got a, um, an autistic child as one of the children. And you go, okay, let's, let's go to, I want to go to some classes. And she's like, oh, please, I've, you know, we've done that to death. I don't want to do it anymore. And he's like, well, I'll go myself or, or please come along, but I want to know more. And I need more um, more ideas and more um, more minds. And then she goes along, and next thing you know, you have this bonding thing, even in the parts that are silly that you learn and the parts that fit. And, and you get to hear a bunch of new things that you weren't willing to hear before because you were so busy trying to get them to wear his shoes. And um, And that was a great idea, and shame on me for for starting out rolling my eyes. <laughs> so thank you for the comeuppance. Go on. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that, that I tell people that, that do want to become step-parents, first and foremost, uh, you have to keep your sense of humor. You know, things are going to happen and everybody's going to get embarrassed and, you know, it, it's just a part of life. It, it truly is. But the biggest part of being a step-parent is communication. Now, with an autistic child, you know, you really need to learn how to communicate with them. Some of them just use sign language and, you know, uh, some aren't even able to learn that. So you have to really learn and get down on their level and know, you know, how am I going to communicate with this child? And, you know, a lot of children, and not just autistic children, a lot of just children, um, they don't want any kind of physical contact at first. So you really have to know the boundaries 
of that child. You know, if you really want to be in a relationship with someone and you want to have a well-blended uh, family or step-family, you, you have to respect each other's space and distance and know when to, you know, get close or even even the part of saying I love you. You know, it can take up to two years for a child to accept a new step-parent. Well, yeah, I mean, it's there, you know, they're coming into the home, to the space, wanting to have some kind of, flex their muscles, right. flex some rules. Of course, of course. I, when you said the thing about communication, my mind's going bing, 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 because, um, you know, communicating with an autistic person is really about listening. It's right. about paying attention in a new way. It's about waiting. It's about believing. And it's not just step-parents. All kinds of parents, when I go into their home, they say, well, he doesn't talk, or, well, he doesn't communicate, or he doesn't listen, or he doesn't. And I'm like, well, the job starts with you. Yes. You know, the communication starts with you. And that means you pay attention to how this communication is coming across so that we can then shape it. And so that was brilliant. And I just wanted to highlight it because I've never met ever in all of my travels all over the world over and over and over and over and over again working with autistic people I've never met one that didn't communicate I've just right. never met one that communicated in a neurotypical fashion or they wouldn't be called autistic so <laughs> sure <laughs> so, right so so it's really that was that was awesome and then the the thing on space um yes Absolutely. It's funny because, again, I walk into homes and I'm hugging them right away, immediately. Everybody's sitting on my lap and hugging them, and they say, autistic people don't do that, and that's not been my experience. But if you're walking in, and you're, as you're uh, the mom's boyfriend or the dad's girlfriend, you're coming in and you're already an invader. <laughs> it's a very different thing, and you have to know that, and you have to sort of walk in with your confidence and, and be a little bit more respectful of all all the space issues and, and just really slowly whittle that away, right? Right. And to add to that, um, you know, children, they almost feel like if they like you, if, if you say, you know, I'm a new stepmother, and if the children like me, they feel like they're betraying their, you know, their mother. Right. So, it, you know, you got to be really careful what role that you take and you know how you approach that role you have to remember that you're a role model you're a moral compass uh for that child well and, and there's a chance of bad blood right so there's a chance that oh, yes. even if you're doing it really well the other mother is is jealous and planting little nuggets of you know or fears losing her children and so well do you like her as much as you like me or that sort of thing right. is going on not everybody's mature in the situation so you can always be dealing with that as well do you have any advice on that in your book yes and yes i do you have to kind of you know really get your partner support you have to get your partner behind you a lot of times um when you're dealing with the the partner's ex-spouse it's, you know, sometimes you have to be the go-between as the step-parent because they can't get along well enough to even speak to each other, you know. And a lot of times they put the kids in the middle. Tell your mom this. Tell your dad that. You know, and that right there, that is the worst thing you could do to a child. You know, I really wish there was a way that when two people, you know, a lot of times when people get it, get married, they have to go to counseling before they can get married. You know, I wish there was a way that people had to go to counseling or take a course when they're going to get a divorce to realize that, okay, we're both grown-ups. We now have to get along for the children's sake. You don't have to come to dinner. You don't have to go, you know, out dancing or anything together anymore. But you have to get along and be adults for the children's sake. And, you know, I would think that when there's an autistic child involved that you would want to work together for the child's sake. But I know just like, you know, that that and any other type of marriage, people just can't, they're not mature enough to handle divorce. <laughs> I love that. It's really t- you know? the divorce course by Michelle. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Actually, a good idea. it's a really great. It's like the judge will be like, well, your, your divorce will be granted once you uh, get your credits. Complete the <laughs> course. That's right. 
<laughs> Actually, it's a great idea. Uh, oh, no. Well, there's mediation and stuff, but you're right. I mean, there they really is. Um, I guess you're getting divor- divorced in the first place probably because of a lack of maturity. Apparently, it took me a long time to mature. I got a lot of divorces. So, um, But I'm really good at staying friends, so there you go. There you go. So, uh, <laughs> So, all right, so what would be your, your final word of advice or what, when you think in terms of you're on a uh, podcast talking to parents who, you know, may be coming together, one of them may uh, be coming into a situation with an autistic child, and when you, you know, sit back and you go, okay, what, what's the pearl of wisdom that I would want to leave them with? Uh, what is it? Okay. I would say to, to be yourself, to love and respect yourself and others, you want to make sure that um, you address conflict positively and establish an open and non-judgmental atmosphere. And above all else, please keep your sense of humor. Awesome. And I would say get a list of myths about autism and read them all and, re- and read them as myths. Okay, that's your step number one because most of them are myths. Um, as far as things like they don't have empathy and they don't uh, they don't show affection. So when you go to educate yourself, first get aware of what which ones are myths so that you're not uh, taught the things that you're trying to not believe in. Right. So don't get confused there. Um, all right, very very cool. And are you willing to offer? This is the great guest giveaway. Are you willing to offer us a copy of your book? Absolutely, the 411 on step parenting. And um, also, I'd like to tell you my website is my411books.com. Oh, that's a great website. Wow, you're very organized. Um, and I'm just going to really quickly tell you she has 411 on surviving teenhood, 411 on life skills, 411 on step parenting, parenting with an edge, teen success, useful information on everyday living. Holy cow, you're amazing. Um, I think it starts with the fact that you were pro- a nurse and there's something about being hands on that keeps you hands on for life and gives you really good uh, tips. So back at you. Thank you for being here. Stay fabulous. And uh, I really appreciate it. If you guys want a copy of her book, you know the drill, Lynette Louise. So it's Lynette at LynetteLouise.com. Put 411 in the subject line. First person gets it. All right. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Okay. Michelle with a hard last name used to be more. It's S. Like Sam, F like Frank, A, K, like King, I, A, N, like Nancy, O, S, Svikanos. Um, Michelle has written a ton of books, and even in the one that we are talking about, the Step Parenting Guide, Essential Tips on Communicating and Bonding, Combining Families, and more. She she has many things that she talks about, uh, one of them being adopting. So adopting is a form of step parenting, if you think about it. Um, so really, really worth getting. Make sure you, somebody, 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 send me that email and get that free book. Um, okay, it is time for Story. I'm going to make it quick, and I'm going to make it important. I was at a, a spiritual seminar in Ashland, Oregon. This was a few years back. I was feeling pretty full of myself and how beautiful I am at being accepting and loving and kind and and uh, seeing my, my self-identity was that I accept all people, all disabilities. And on stage trots at this wonderful spiritual seminar with Jimmy Twyman, who is uh, known as the Peace Troubadour because he travels all over the world, followed by people singing peace songs. And by the way, everyone has challenges. Here's this Peace Troubadour whose uh, wife was murdered in our home. So we all have to rise above something. Always remember that. That's how you'll not be a bully and be accepting. But you may run into the problem I ran into that day. Oh, and by the way, Neil Donald Walsh was there too, and um, just a bunch of people that were, you know, we're all the kind of people that are supposedly so accepting and all-encompassing in our our outreach to the world. So here we are at this thing, and, and on stage, not trots, but wheels, uh, a lady who's very, very, very disabled, can't work her own wheelchair, can't talk. She's just very disabled. And uh, she's sitting in the chair and doesn't really do much at all that you can see. 
and somebody's with her, and they call her grandmother. And I find myself rolling my eyes. I'm like, grandmother, seriously. She looks like somewhere between 12 and 25, which when someone's disabled and and not able to get the muscle tone that you normally would in your face from talking and, and moving it the way that we do, it's hard to ascertain age. So there I am. Rolling my inner eyes and thinking I know that they're just trying to target everyone and act like she's so special when really she's disabled and special in this way and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to appreciate her as who she really is. And I'm completely ignoring all of her prophecies and all the things that they're saying that she's doing and, and all of the information that they're saying she's giving people and the questions she's apparently answering because the woman beside her would lean over and put her ear to the lady's mouth and then stand up and and proclaim whatever had been said and so i'm going oh brother even though even though i'm at a spiritual seminar that i'm a part of and um, have just done a movie with these people called indigo so i should have an open mind but i i I think i know better so i've got all this attitude while smiling and embracing and accepting everyone not seeing my own incongruence and uh at the break this young lady, woman, is some place where I can actually walk up to her. So I'm walking towards her feeling like, well, I'm going to do this properly. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to say hello to her and treat her like who she is. And I get down on my haunches and I go, hi, my name's Lynette Louise. And she goes, and pushes me away, sticks her hand in my face and pushes me away. And the woman beside her said, oh, grandmother doesn't like people to approach her, um, without an invitation. And I stepped away surprised because people usually accept me. And I saw something in that moment as she pushed me away that looked an awful lot like maturity and intelligence and a rejection of someone who was about to treat her like a child. And I saw it and I felt it, and I knew it to be true. And as I walked away that day, I I changed a little bit. I changed a little bit from all these big things. It takes a lot of little bits of changes to make a, a bigger person, I think. So I changed a little bit. I realized that I had approached her thinking I was approaching her in an accepting manner, but actually had predecided who she really was and was approaching her with that in mind, and sort of like a child. So the point is, to do true acceptance, you cannot see when you're rolling your eyes. You have to actually listen, observe, and let the other person tell you who they are in whatever manner they are able to do that in. And we really can't expect other people to accept our community if we don't accept ourselves. So that's where it has to begin. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as the Brain Broad. Thank you for being here, because without you, I'd just be talking to myself on the new spin on autism answers. Today's question, can we change the world if we don't change ourselves? Today's answer is nope. Thank you for joining the show today. Lynette is the author of the refreshingly honest and at times hilarious new book, Miracles Are Made, A Real-Life Guide to Autism. You can purchase this and other materials by looking on the webtalkradio.net website and clicking on the covers. You can also click through to her Facebook page and check out any show you may have missed by looking in the archives. We'll see you soon for another edition of a new spin on autism. Answers. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. I can't hear you.